It's good to be with you this week. We got started as a church plant on March 1st of 2020, and if you can remember what March 1st of 2020, none of us knew was coming. Uh, so consequently, we you know, got going in worship as a core group, and then we lost the opportunity to meet together in the building that we were renting, and then we've kind of been, um, what would you say, nomads for about two years since we couldn't find space consistently to rent to us. So being in a group this size just feels like, you know, we, we've, we've packed out the room. Let me pray. We've, we've heard the Scripture already. Let me pray for our reception of the Word of God. Lord God, we come to You as Your people, desiring Your Word, but knowing that our sin distances us from even what You have revealed in Your Word. We need Your Spirit to access what You have said in this text. I need your spirit to overcome my desire to move in some other direction than what your text would call us to. And so we pray that you would overcome me, that you would overcome us, that you would guide us by your spirit and conform us to your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So we've heard from a text that is a difficult one, that is the psalmist encountering difficult things. And I want to set us up a little bit for that. I'm now realizing one of my favorite movies is becoming a really old movie. I did the calculation as I was preparing to do this, um, this illustration and found out the, the movie Braveheart came out in 1995. That's 27 years ago. So I'm now talking to something that some of you weren't alive when, uh, when it became a, a blockbuster. So I'll try and fill in some details. Um, it's a movie about the Scottish freedom fighter William Wallace. And I'm engaging more with the depiction of William Wallace that Mel Gibson made in that movie than I am with the historical figure of William Wallace. But in that movie, uh, we see this commoner, William Wallace, who was something of a political and military genius, managing to weld the disparate clans and nobles of Scotland together into a military machine that was capable of taking on what was the superpower of their day, uh, the English armies of Edward the Longshanks of England and was able to repeatedly defeat those armies in battle. But as time goes on, uh, Wallace is defeated not by military might, but by betrayal. And he's handed over to the English. And he is sentenced by them, and in, in his trial, he keeps contending, I never swore fealty to the English king, so I have not committed treason. I am just fighting for what is right, for justice, for a Scotland that is not dominated by her enemies. Well, the English don't like that, and so they sentence him to be hanged, drawn, quartered, and beheaded in the intention that somewhere along that quadruple death sentence he would die. Now, as it is portrayed in the movie, he is given throughout this torturous execution the opportunity to simply swear fealty, admit his treason, and be killed painlessly. And what is set up in those scenes is this clash of wills, uh, this trial between William Wallace representing the hope of justice, the hope of freedom, the hope of what is right, and the overarching power of the English crown demanding his submission. And as he is tortured, he continues to cling to this ideal. 
But finally, at the end, the axe falls. And you see an image of Wallace letting go of a piece of cloth, and it falls against the sun. We know from earlier in the movie that cloth is his wife's token. It was something that they exchanged during a hand-fasting ceremony at their wedding. It's the equivalent of a modern wedding ring. And for Wallace to let go of that token, we know means that he's indeed dead. And that with him has died the hope for justice. The hope for an end to oppression. And in a context like that, uh, looking on as his friends, watching the, the, the torture and the betrayal and the death, we just have this sense of why. Why do we live in a world where injustice wins? We can look at our own day, uh, the recent but growing rash of mass shootings, the intensification of the war in Ukraine and the, the announcement in the last few days by the Ukrainian government telling their people nowhere in Ukraine should be considered safe as Russian missiles can target any spot in the country. I have a friend that's a, a pastor in Myanmar. And in Myanmar, there has been a military coup that has taken over two years ago, maybe two and a half now, an elected government, and is executing people at random. And my pastor friend's description of the difficulty of pastoring a church in active siege. Uh, when we survive something like we've survived as a nation in the last two years between the pandemic and the political stratification, and we start realizing that people that we count as brothers and sisters want to decide whether or not they're going to still see us even as friends based on whether we agree with them on what we're doing about masks and vaccines and who we're voting for. And we have this deep sense of why. Why, God, do we live in the midst of this sort of struggle? And in that, we're uniting our voices to the voice of the psalmist here who's saying we feel overwhelmed in the face of evil and oppression. But where the psalmist goes, where he takes us, is that he says God who has demonstrated his power in the past will overcome evil in the future. I want to, to walk through the, the specifics of the text as we see this unfolding. Uh, the first thing in what gets called verse 0 in the English, verse 1 in the Hebrew, to the choir master. According to Jeduthun, we assume probably a, a musical term or a particular tune, a psalm of Asaph. Now, Asaph was a choir leader in the days of David. He was a contemporary of King David. And when we're dealing with a psalm, we want, if we can, to seat that psalm in its historical context. Uh, but very often, the psalm doesn't give us enough to know what the context is. Uh, Jedu, uh, sorry, uh, Asaph was indeed a historical individual who wrote psalms, but there are a lot of psalms that are attributed to Asaph, including Psalm 74 and 79, which seem pretty clearly to describe the fall of Jerusalem. And it's not possible that a contemporary of David would have seen the fall of Jerusalem 400 years later. So we probably should understand that psalms attributed to Asaph are attributed to Asaph or the choir that continued after him in the tradition that he founded. Now, we could find events during the life of David that would warrant this type of psalm. Uh, David's son, Absalom, rebelled against him. 
And so during David's reign, there was a period of time when Absalom had brought most of the nation against David. And we can see in that rebellion this breakdown where we could see psalmists crying out, why, God, do you allow your people to be divided this way? But there are many times in Israel's history that could look like this. Uh, following David's reign and following the high point in Solomon, the kingdom is torn in two. And we see this supposed to be united people of God splintered. As time goes on, foreign nations begin to dominate Israel and Judah. And they fall from a position of relative strength and relative weakness to a slow uh, decline into vassal status, where they're basically just doing what outside powers are telling them they have to do. And finally, in the destruction of Jerusalem and the withdrawal of God's people to exile in Babylon. And at any time across this period when the choir of Asaph is producing psalms to embody the experience of God's people and to guide God's people in worship before God, because that's what the psalms are. It's the, the worship book of the Old Testament. We have experiences where we see God's people enduring tremendous suffering. And in that context, we see God, through his word, telling them it's appropriate to bring that pain, that suffering, that experience into worship and sing it to God. And so we see in verses 1 through 3, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Now, in that context, and I'm starting my timer so that I don't just go for 45 minutes or an hour here. Sorry, I have no sense of time. Uh, when we experience what the psalmist is experiencing, when we go through that sort of pain and that sort of suffering, one of the things we need to bear in mind is a concept I'm going to call local variation. Now, we are in the midst of a period that is uh, a, a time of global temperature increase. Now, I'm not going to get into the, the reasons or causes for that. That's a divisive issue. But what is not divisive, what is not um, up for discussion, is the fact that we can see we're in the middle of a global warming trend. And yet, 2008 was one of the coldest years in recorded temperature history. In more than a century of data, we can say 2008 was one of the coldest years we've had. That doesn't mean that the global warming trend was suddenly reversed. Rather, it was an instance of local variation. As we experience suffering as God's people, as we in the West, in America particularly, in the wake of the pandemic, if you look at reports from uh, the I'm going to use the word evangelical to represent churches that teach the gospel and that teach the Bible. I realize that word is becoming more and more of a political football, and I don't mean to get into that discussion. But in the evangelical world, following the pandemic, churches are reported to be at about 60 to 80 percent of what they were prior to the pandemic. We can look at a trend like that and say, God, where are you? And yet, we live in the midst of a time when the church is exploding in Latin America in Africa, in Asia. And so to a certain extent, and the, the remarkable thing is that some of these places where the church is exploding and growing the fastest are some of the places that are experiencing the most repression. 
the most oppression from their official governments. And so we need to remember as people experiencing what appears to us to be church decline, we may be experiencing local variation. Now, the psalmist offers a specific complaint. He says in verses 4 through 9, You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. If you've ever struggled with insomnia, you know that, that sense of you know, the worries and cares and difficulties of the world you see going on around you beginning to, to hold you awake, and he's actually saying, God is allowing this to happen. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. And his spirit asks, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut out his compassion? Now, this psalm, Psalm 77, is an example of what we call a corporate lament. Uh, it's remarkable when I made the comment that um, the psalms are the, the hymn book of the Old Testament, if you will. That is because the psalms are affectively expressing and bringing into worship where we sing together and through that process of singing together, bring forward our emotions in God's presence under the direction of Scripture. And the largest category when we categorize the psalms, that's not to say that most of them fall into this, but of the different categories you might have, the largest, largest category is lament. When we experience pain and suffering, the very structure of the book of Psalms is telling us it's appropriate that we bring that lament, that pain, into the presence of God as his people. In the case of an individual psalm, it's the individual uh, uniting themselves by acknowledging their pain, the corporate body coming around them, and claiming that individual's pain for the corporate body as the presence of God, who in the New Testament calls us his body and himself the head. Now, I typically take that analogy, head and body, and make it a term of separation, but what happens when you separate head and body? It's an organic connection. We experience the presence of God as his people corporately. And in the individual lament, it's the congregation coming around the suffering individual to unite them to God's presence. In the corporate lament, like this one, it's rather the individual connecting themselves to the corporate entity. And in that identification with the corporate entity, beginning to feel the presence and peace and comfort of God. I've got two uh, sort of, we'll call them verbal diagrams for you. One is Christ and a whole bunch of dots connected by individual lines. And this is the sort of American or Western conception of the, the corporate picture of God. We're very, very individualistic. And so it's my relationship with Jesus that is the, the thing that exists there. And the corporate entity of God, God's people, is just kind of who I choose to hang out with and who I enjoy being around and where I go to get teaching. Now, an alternative model, Jesus and one circle, connected by one line. And this would be more of an Eastern, say, India or a Japanese concept of the church where there is very little individual identity and where the corporate identity is the, the dominant and almost the only identity. Uh, the biblical picture, though, unites those two pictures. 
We are individuals made in God's image and therefore have value and purpose as individuals, and yet we are also a corporate entity. And we are drawn into the corporate entity of the people of God, not because it's our preference, but because we are corporately the bride of Christ. And so the Psalms and coming together to sing our lament and to unite our struggles to the corporate entity is part of how we experience God speaking into our experience of struggle. Now, I got confused as I was preparing the sermon. I've been reading up on the Black Death recently, and I was thinking, you know, Black Death occurs in the, in the 1340s, and it's a massive pandemic. And I was like, oh, my illustration ties into this experience of pandemic, but actually it was about 40 years earlier, so they, they don't really tie on. But think about some of those things where we can, as individuals, have experienced suffering, have experienced the the fracturing of the church. We're a little bitty congregation, and even in a little bitty congregation, we lost people over that phenomenon that most churches describe that in the last two years, you had people slipping out the left and right entrance. Because whatever you were doing as a church, people were judging, well, you're too conservative, you're too liberal because you differ with someone else over how to deal with an entirely new situation that none of us have figured out how to respond to. That's painful or immediately now, in the wake of the Supreme Court's overturning of the Roe v. Wade decision. I look at my Facebook feed, and it seems that half the people on the feed want to complain that the overturning of a 50-year-old decision has knocked us back into the 16th century somehow, and the other half of the people want to celebrate like everything's done and everything's going to be peaches and roses from here on and are ignoring the fact that half of the states now have zero abortion rules and that the other half of the states allow abortion up until birth. And there's a failure to engage with the pain and the fear that the other side is talking about and figure out how do we do the work of loving people well and understanding where they're coming from and conforming ourselves to the Scripture. In the midst of those sorts of things, we see what feels like the decline of the church. And we need to ask, what, what hope does God offer us? What place does God send us as we see his church suffering? And so the psalmist, after asking these questions, has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises an end for all time? As a person of faith, there's only one answer that the psalmist can make to those questions. It's inconsistent with God's character to claim that he's going to be silent and inactive in the face of suffering. It's inconsistent with who God is, and so these questions have to be answered, no. And that's where he goes in the rest of the psalm. He says, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. And from here, he begins to describe the activity of God, and he's using a lot of images of water and of storm. And ultimately, where those images seem to be leading is to the Red Sea. We read in verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. 
Now, what he's referring to there is how God, about 3,200 years ago, about uh, four or five, maybe as much as 800 years before the time that the psalm is being written, God did this event that the rest of the Old Testament looks back to as sort of the high watermark, forgive the pun, of God's activity in history. When God takes his people and rescues them from what was then the world's greatest superpower, Egypt, and brings them out of Egypt, and then Pharaoh changes his mind. And he gathers the world's most powerful army and goes to crush these defenseless fleeing slaves against the Red Sea. And instead, God demonstrates his authority over the largest and most powerful and most chaotic image that the people of Israel can, can envision, the ocean. And he opens it and leads his people through to safety on dry ground. And when that most powerful army on earth tries to pursue them, God demonstrates his power not only over the forces of nature in the ocean, but over the most powerful kingdom that mankind has brought to bear. And he crushes Pharaoh's army and breaks the back of Egypt's power. And the psalmist looks back to this mighty intervention of God into history and says, I can see that you were faithful then. And I can believe that your answer to these questions is your activity at an end. Has your steadfastness and your faithfulness ceased? Your answer is no, it is not. Now, the psalmist looks back to the Red Sea. But as the New Testament people of God, we have much greater acts to look back to. We can look back not only to this intervention of God in history at the Red Sea, but rather of God himself entering into a broken world, a world where God the Son, becoming fully human, confronted and experienced the worst abuses and injustices and betrayals that we can imagine or of easy comparison to the sorts of things we've been describing as what we encounter that looks like decline of God's people. And Jesus confronted those things. Jesus confronted an execution that was even worse than the execution I described at the beginning. And the remarkable thing is that the physical execution of the cross itself was not the hard part. Because Jesus, as a member of the Trinity, was himself the holy God, was offended by the brokenness and destructiveness and injustice of the world that we live in and could not allow that destructiveness and that sin to come into contact with the holy God. And so had to, in himself, allow the anger of the triune God to be poured out on God himself as he took away the penalty, as he took away the, the demand that the justice of God made against human injustice. And as we look at these struggles I've been describing, and mostly I've been seeing those as our experience of things out there, and yet we identify with it ourselves. We have unforgiving attitudes. We have an unwillingness to engage with the person that is offended by us. We can see that we are contributors to the very problems that make a psalm like this identify with us so much. And Jesus dealt with that rebellion against him. 
He's pointing out the reality that the God of the past, the God who worked powerfully in history, will be the God for all ages, will be the one who continues to work powerfully. Uh, a Presbyterian pastor from more than a century ago, B.B. Warfield, in confronting pain and suffering in his congregation, made the comment, when we talk about the early church, we typically are talking about the church in the few hundred years before it became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. But he said, we don't know how long this story of God revealing His faithfulness to the world as He gathers His people to Himself, as He restores and redeems creation goes on. It could be that someday in the year 10,000, the church may look back at the year 2022 and talk about the faithfulness of God to the early church that is you and I. And from the revelation of God's faithfulness to His people in dark times, draw comfort. There's a motivation there that is the sort of motivation that Robert the Bruce, the king of Scotland, uses in the movie Braveheart. Now again, we're focusing more on the movie than the actual historical content, but Robert the Bruce, the heir apparent to the throne of Scotland, is actually involved in the betrayal that turns Wallace over to the English. And the, the deal he has cut in order to make himself king of Scotland is that as king of Scotland, he is going to go to Bannockburn and meet the armies of King Edward and kneel in subjugation to that army. And he will bring a symbolic army with him that will symbolically kneel before the armies of England and subjugate the kingdom of Scotland to the kingdom of England. But as it's played out in the movie, Bruce has that token. Somehow it's been smuggled away from the execution site and given to Bruce. And Bruce might not know the history of that token being, you know, the equivalent of a wedding ring between Wallace and his wife. But what he knows about it is that it was important to Wallace. In fact, it's spattered with Wallace's blood from his execution. Bruce has seen its importance to Wallace before, and as he touches that token, you see him engaging with what Wallace was seeking to accomplish and what he, Robert the Bruce, King of Scotland, is about to dismantle by his subservience to the English king. And he turns back to this symbolic army behind him, and he says simply, you bled with Wallace, bleed with me. He's appealing to the beauty and the glory and the justice of what Wallace had built from Scotland. And he's saying, we were able to do that before. Let's do it again. One of Wallace's generals, a childhood friend, is present in that symbolic army. And he happens to have Wallace's sword with him. He runs into the field between the two armies and defiantly throws the sword, screaming a battle cry. And the sword falls into the turf between the two armies, standing up symbolic of the perseverance of Wallace's spirit. The Scottish army screams their battle cry and begins to, to take the field. And the English army that thought they were here on ceremonial duty, that hadn't come to fight a battle, looks up in horror as the assailing army charges them. We get the voiceover from Mel Gibson who played Wallace in the year of our Lord, 1314. 
the patriots of Scotland, starving and outnumbered, charged the fields at Bannockburn. They fought like warrior poets. They fought like Scotsmen and won their freedom. They had engaged this picture of what had been in the past, the power that had existed in the past, and believed that that power could still animate them that day. Now, we want to be careful here. What the psalmist is doing is not giving us a powerful example and saying, now, in light of that example, by the strength of your own power, pull yourself up by your bootstraps into faithfulness. He's rather pointing us to the action and power of God and the faithfulness and promises of God and saying, if the God who has acted in the past promises he will act in the future, then by that promise, by the power of the Holy Spirit acting in us, uniting us to the power that he has purchased at the cross, God will continue to act faithfully in the future. The God of the past is still God today. He's shown his faithfulness in the past. And whatever the pain or circumstances we're confronting, he will be faithful and will provide us with the faith to be faithful as well. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you as people that experience pain and suffering and hurt, and we realize that we are people who contribute to that pain and suffering and hurt. We are overwhelmed by the pain of our own sin, by the pain of the broken world around us. But we cry out to you with the psalmist. You who have been faithful in history, you who saved your people at the Red Sea, you who have entered into history to redeem your people at the cross, fill us with the power purchased at the cross. Animate us by your Holy Spirit. Make us your mouthpieces as we go out into a world that is suffering and hurting and on the brink of giving up with the message that the God of the past is still God today, is still faithful, is still at work. Lead us by your faithfulness. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.